<laughs> yes, he's here. He made it. <laughs> and we're extremely happy to have him here, not least me, because finally I can get all four of my cookbooks signed. <laughs> Um, it's lovely to see you all here and a big uh, vote of thanks to Sydney Opera House for having us in this gorgeous space and for looking after us so beautifully and to all of you for coming along as practically the last event of Good Food Month this year. So um, it's a wonderful way to wind up. Now, it's also, of course, wonderful to have Yotam here. Um, most of you probably know a lot about him. You've probably cooked lots of his recipes, but for the benefit of anyone who was dragged along tonight and doesn't know anything, I might just do a little bit of an introduction. Um, it is a little bit hard, though, to sum up Yotta Motolenghi. Uh, he was born in Israel of an Italian father and a mother of German descent and studied philosophy and worked for a while as a journalist and then left Israel for Amsterdam and decided he wanted to become a pastry chef as you do, um, and then ended up in London uh, with a bunch of rather like-minded souls, I think, um, including Sammy Tamini, um, and we'll talk about him later, uh, but he was um, instrumental, along with others, in setting up the very first Ottolenghi Deli Café in London, that was back in 2002. And a couple more followed, all in the smarter, nicer parts of London. And then came the one on the bottom of the pile, um, the very first bestseller, Ottolenghi, the cookbook, which was written with, with Sammy Tamini, a fellow Jerusalem native. Um, then there were the TV series, and um, many of you would be familiar with Jerusalem on a Plate and uh, Yotamotolenghi's Mediterranean Feasts and the gorgeous journeys that he's taken us on on the small screen. And a couple more cookbooks through the pile. Um, firstly, Plenty, which was born out of your um, vegetable-based columns for The Guardian. And then I've got them out of order, and Jerusalem. <laughs> And then finally, the reason we managed to lure Yotam to Sydney, Plenty More, which has just been released and is, it's the sequel. It's Plenty, the sequel, Plenty More, uh, also vegetable-based, and it's great to have that here for you all to purchase later on and get signed and all those things. Um, and destined, of course, to be another great hit. Um, so lots and lots of things have happened since 2002, Yotam. Um, did you imagine that way back when you went over to London to become a pastry chef, that all this it's was going to... It's not the kind of thing you imagine. <laughs> and uh, no, it never occurred to me. It's, it's, um, it's a great feeling to, I mean, to be here in this room and just getting all that Australian love is, uh, is, is, <laughs> is, kind, of it. is kind of nice. And uh, just the whole idea of, um, you know, cooking and, and sharing my food and having such a wide audience experiencing it is nothing I have ever could imagine. Um, I didn't even know that I'm going to be writing books. It was all, I, I remember when um, we played with Sami and I, uh, wrote uh, Ottolenghi, the first book, it was kind of, I said something, you know, we've got our, our customers, you know, they really want a cookbook and they come in and say, why, when, when are you going to finally publish a cookbook? Let's do that. We'll do this book. We'll get it out of the way and then we can go back to the business of 
of you know cooking and that's it and never in my wildest dream did i imagine that there's going to be more books and more books and tv and all that business it was it was completely um unimaginable and it's it's a great feeling because i because the books were popular i really get to um do the thing that i like doing the most which is creating recipes and many cooks and chefs would tell you that that when you work in a kitchen, you get very little time to be creative. 99.5% of the time, you just churn out food. And then there's a just very few moments where there's actually creativity going on. And I'm paid a salary to just create recipes all day long. So I, I've got the perfect job. <laughs> and thank goodness, because as you can see from my cookbooks, there's lots of post-it notes in them. And there's lots of things that we have all loved to cook from, from your books. And I think that's really what makes you stand out from many cookbook authors, is that you write recipes that we, we all really do want to cook. But let's go back first to... Um, where it all began, I guess, in, in Jerusalem and your obsessive relationship with food, that, <laughs> <laughs> as to quote, um, and your childhood in, in Jerusalem. What was it like? Where well, did the food uh, bit come in? Yeah, well, the food was always there. I, I, I was one of these very fortunate people. I'm sure there's some people in the audience that would ex probably experience this that have had the kind of a very multicultural, uh, multiculinary background. I... I I have my parents are obviously of, uh, as Joanna said, from uh, two kind of big European cultures, and um, so I had that food at home. And um, but out on the street, you know, Jerusalem is at the heart of the Middle East, and it's got all the wonderful food traditions of of the Middle East that we all, uh, you know, have come to know. You know, the food of Lebanon and Syria and Egypt and Turkey. And those are magnificent royal cuisines, as I call them. I mean, there was fantastic food all around me, markets with all the vegetables and the spices and all the condiments and the ingredients and the dishes that, that I, Sami and I wrote about with so much love in, in Jerusalem. And uh, so I got a little bit of everything, a bit of Europe, a bit of the Middle East, and it's a great starting point for someone who is going to find themselves 30 years on actually uh, actually cooking and and uh, and yeah so that this I guess that's how my palate has been has been formed and I'm grateful ever since and of course there was that Italian influence somewhere in the household I imagine yeah I'm so not Italian now in my cooking I mean I'm my um, my, uh, my my you know there's la the last thing you can call me is a minimalist and um, <laughs> And my, my dad, bless him, he's such a nice man, and he would never criticize me. But, you know, when, when we sit down for dinner and I cook something, uh, which doesn't happen so often because normally I want my parents to cook for me to, that, to this day, um, he looks and he eats and he enjoys it, but I know he thinks my food is way too busy. <laughs> and uh, for him, you know, just a good, you know, just a couple of vegetables, on the grill, some olive oil, maybe garlic, that's the end of it. Good ingredients, not messed about, no, all, all those spices and herbs. And, and uh, so, you know, it's a very different approach to food, but it's still a very, uh, it still comes from the same place. It's that kind of appreciation of how good food can taste and the celebration of, or, and the, of the, uh, the ceremony of sitting down for a meal, uh, which was always very, very important in our house. So I, I think, it's definitely had, uh, had an effect on me, even if I don't cook Italian. <laughs> <laughs> but you were saying you had really popular lunch boxes at school. 
Oh yes, I had popular <laughs> drugs <laughs> at school. Uh, so there is two traditions in the house. There's the, the Italian tradition and there's the German tradition. And um, as you can probably imagine, one is slightly you know, more attractive to a youngster growing up than the other. But um, I have to, uh, I have to uh, give my mom credit or discredit for something because she really kind of corrupted the whole family because my dad actually comes from a good Jewish family. They used to keep kosher most of the time. But my mom is like from a very, she, they're not good Jews. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so we were served the pork and uh, and uh, and my mom used to buy her her ham under the counter from a butcher shop in uh, in Jerusalem. That's true. Um, the guy would give it to her wrapped up in a brown bag, and nobody would know because uh, it's just not not you know. If he would sell it out in the open, he would be stoned. So um, I mean, you're laughing, but this is quite serious. And. Um, so my mom used to make delicious ham sandwiches for us for school, but um, she always used to tell um, uh, me and my siblings, just don't tell them, it's, just say it's turkey. So for years I used to go to school with these amazing turkey sandwiches. <laughs> and um, I mean, nobody cared that the turkey was actually pink. But, uh, but yeah, that was, my, that was my point of, uh, you know, that was what I kind of, uh, realize that maybe I'm a little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they were all going home saying, Yotam's got this great turkey. I don't know where he gets it from, but we want it to. Um, yeah. Your business and your first three books were, were um, put together with, or first book was, yeah. and third book, were put together with Sami Tamini, who is also from Jerusalem, but of a Palestinian background. So how did that work? Um, did you have much... Did you find her much in common, or is there a lot that actually that's different? Because you would have di grown up on two very different sides yeah. of the world, really. It's almost uncanny, because Sami and I were born in the same year in Jerusalem. And when we finally met in London in the late 90s, we realized that we had such parallel upbringings. And we grew up in the two sides of the dividing um, you know, line of Jerusalem between the Jews and the Muslims. But we, we both um, moved to Tel Aviv at the same age. We both moved to London at the same age a few years later. And we really shared so much. We had so much in common. And, um, and we only discovered it in, when, we, when we started working together in a, in a restaurant, in a cafe in London. And the funny thing was that Sami and I, when I first met him, I, uh, we, got, we got talking, and we were speaking for about 10, 15 minutes before we realized that we, we were speaking in English, but actually we could speak in Hebrew because his Hebrew is perfect. And uh, this is kind of, I mean, ever since then we had this, uh, this bond that is, uh, was not really completely only related to food. It's just because we have such a similar background in many ways. Uh, but when it came to Do Jerusalem, the book, quite a few years later, uh, after we met, maybe almost, I think, 10 years after we met, uh, longer than that, um, we, um, we, we, Noam, our business partner, said, why don't you write a book about Jerusalem? And, um, and Sammy and I looked at it and said, why would we do that? Because Jerusalem of our childhood was a great place, but it's somehow when, if you're born in Jerusalem, if you're a young adult, you kind of want to leave because it's a very intense place. It's very highly religious. 
it's it's got a very uh, it, it's very backward looking and you know as a youngster you want to look forward and outward so we were both as many of our friends were keen to leave so going back and looking you know 20 years later and saying why don't you write a book about Jerusalem felt quite un unusual also because we didn't feel that our food is the food of Jerusalem we've kind of taken a few ingredients but it's we didn't serve hummus in the restaurants or falafel or any of the classics of Palestinian and, and Israeli food um, but um, but we, we decided to give it a chance. And we, I remember we met one day in Sammy's house in one afternoon, and we're sitting in the kitchen. And um, we started kind of reminiscing and talking about our little corners of the city where we used to, to eat. And all of a sudden, we were, after two hours, we were with, with a list of about 400 dishes we wanted to try. It was like, we couldn't stop it. You know, the Yemeni soup from that corner and the guy that was selling the hummus in that corner and then, and then that bread baker. The other, I mean, it was completely clear to us that we have to do it. And um, I think it's got to do with age and with the fact that you get a bit more forgiving and nostalgic and we allowed ourselves to really immerse ourselves in the project. And, um, and it was great fun because in a sense, it's nice to let go, and it's also nice to kind of come back uh, with, a new, uh, with a new perspective and a new agenda, but also kind of go back and check what was, how, we, how we were created, I mean, as, a, as, as human beings and as, as cooks. Do you have different points of view politically um, because of your backgrounds? Um, no, actually not. We do. We, so I mean, I d never argue about politics for for some funny reason. I think the main thing is that we're both bad examples of our culture, <laughs> and, uh, and and uh, and um, so I'm not your typical Israeli, and he's not your typical Palestinian, and we live far away from the conflict. So we somehow it's it never comes up as an issue. I think we both see. Uh, things eye to eye, we're quite, you know, despondent and depressed at the moment of the way things have been um, evolving. But never, it never occurred to us to even start to engage in an argument because we, we really don't, we, we, we are just very good friends and all the rest is just incidental and uh, not really important. And we like cooking together, we like the same kind of food, so that's, that's really what's important to us. And that's how, of course, those wonderful deli cafes were, were born in London. And I'm sure many of you have been to one of the Ottolenghi restaurant cafes, delis, in um, Notting Hill or Islington, Belgravia. I think there's another one coming. Yes, uh, there's another one in the pipeline. In, uh, we're opening a, a, a next year in, um, in Li near Liverpool Street in East London. Uh, a little, uh, well, not so little, a bit like in Islington. So it's going to be a cafe takeaway and, and also a proper restaurant. So it's a big project because we don't open restaurants very often. So we've, we're kind of been working on that for the last couple of years. Right. But they're all, as, as many of you I'm sure know, it's beautiful white with these bold splashes of colour and all the, the dishes that are on display are so enticing just because of the colour, the combination of ingredients and very much a sort of a style, I guess. And um, bold, bright and beautiful. And I think you said to me once, sunny food, and I'm sure you've said that many times, but really sunny, bright food, which in grey old London is probably part of the charm. Um, do you think that, did you set out to do that or is it just something that evolved into a, an Ottolenghi style? Yeah, I don't think we knew what the Ottolenghi style will be when we started. It's, it, it, it evolved. Um, by, I think it's a kind of a negotiation or understanding that we started to have with our 
you know, with the people who bought our food. Because I think that when you sell food, as, unlike in a restaurant, our food is most of the food, uh, not in Nopi, but in Autolenghi, is on display. So people walk in and they can basically buy what they see. And I think it actually affected the food that we sell quite a lot because people buy with their eyes and they have a certain idea about what it is that the food should look like and then they, 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 they uh, kind of assume about the flavor based on, that, on, the, on those assumptions or on, on the visuals aspect. So in some ways, unlike restaurants, we're very driven by the, by the visual, by the visuality. And um, after a few years of like working on honing our tools, you know, our display is something that both Sam and I are very proud of. I can spend, I used to spend not so much more, not so not much now, but I used to spend hours setting it up you know it's like a, it's like you know if you've traveled in the middle east you see this market stalls uh, holders coming in the morning and building up their piles of spices or or vegetables etc we kind of apply the same the same uh, attention and when you come in in the morning and you want to set it up there's a lot of things that you know that need to fit you know you fit this plate under that one and it's it's a kind of it's a it's a juggling act but it's something that you know, both of us think is very special, and and then where the food has that follow has to really look great. So uh, it somehow it's almost the opposite. We think of what it looks like before the flavor, but the flavor also needs to be good as well. What so what's what's an Ottolenghi dish got in it, and what what's not an Ottolenghi? Uh, well, this is a, <laughs> this is a tricky one because I I have been trying to give put some kind of. To, to, kind of get a description of what it is to be an Ottolenghi dish. And I was forced to uh, recognize a while ago that we are limited by a certain Ottolenghi uh, ethos or brand. And um, that was when I was in my test kitchen. And uh, we were trying this dish, which was a really delicious pea soup. It was spring, and the peas were delicious and sweet. And it really was almost perfect. And we were testing it, and everybody said, oh, that's really wonderful. I'm going to have another bowl. But then one of my um, assistants said, um, you know, but it's not very Ottolenghi. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a moment of revelation that I realized that in some way I'm a, I'm a victim of my own success. So everything needs to be super exciting and different <laughs> and dramatic. And it was just a solid pea soup is not good enough. And, uh, and the, you know, any person who would, you know, bother to make the recipe would go and say, oh, that's okay, but it's not Ottolenghi. So now we've had to kind of, you know, we had to upgrade this very quickly and find some kind of busy croutons with, uh, <laughs> with uh, saffron and all sorts of spices b b built into them to make the poor old pea soup taste really different. So, um, yeah, no, that is actually the case. Beyond the, the you know, the, the humor, it is really the case that I, we try to make things very, very exciting, very different, because I think people do have that expectations from an Ottolenghi recipe that needs to be, uh, there needs to be a point of difference, and there needs to be, I don't know, lots of things. There needs to be acidity, there needs to be smoke, there needs to be sweet, there needs to be surprise. Not every bite should be the same as the other bite. All that kind of experiences are, are what, what um, we end up aiming for now. Yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, here people will say, oh, it's very Ottolenghi. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's something that we all use to describe a style of food now, I think. Um, and obviously, when you wrote that very first cookbook in 2008, you were, you were probably uh, taking a lot of 
Londoners through things that they hadn't discovered before, like sartan, sumac, and good old pomegranate molasses. And I defy any of you not to have some in your cupboard yeah. now. Um, all those yeah, things that... And check <laughs> the Ottolenghi police will be on to you. Um, but all those things that are now almost every day. So you... Modesty aside, you've probably, and people have said this before, that you have changed the way a lot of people eat and certainly cook and the look of their, their pantry shelves. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess to a degree, I, 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 um, I have to say in my defense that uh, I think this would have happened because there was a bunch of ingredients that were just ready to be explored and discovered. And the food of the Middle East um, is a wonderful uh, f food. It's very diverse. It's much more complicated than, you know, the title Middle Eastern food. I don't think it does this uh, any justice. But there, was, there are certain ingredients, you know, preserved lemons and cardamom and you mentioned pomegranate molasses and date syrup and all, all those things that um, I've, been, um, I've been cooking with over the last few years were, are really fantastic ingredients. And I think um, in, in the West, in, you know, in Europe and North America and also Australia, uh, we have been through a few Mediterranean cuisines and they've gone through them quite deeply. I mean, archetype is the Italian one, but then the same applies for Spanish and Greek, etc. But the, the, the food of the, of the Arab world and Israel uh, has not been uh, explored at all. And I think we, only, we had quite a few bad examples of kebab houses that we go in to eat when you're pissed. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, but we never had a, seri a serious... Um, uh, kind of examples of those cuisines up until five or ten years ago. Um, I think it's a little bit different in Australia because you have a very uh, big Lebanese community, and I, I don't think it, it, what I'm saying applies as much, but, um, but it definitely applies to North, North America and, and, and Britain. And um, those ingredients uh, applied to d daily cooking, I think, were just ready to be discovered, and I just happened to be the one who uh, pointed at them and told people, like, go and buy your tahini paste, because otherwise you're missing on something great. <laughs> Started the, put, put the name to the revolution. Um, talking of revolution, when we, Yotan was here in 2010, um, which was great, and we had a conversation then, and I asked him what he would like to talk about, and he said, oh, let's talk about the politics of food. And I went, great, because in my previous life I was a serious journalist and I thought that sounded like an excellent meaty topic. Um, but you talk very much about then about how food can bring people together. Is that still what the politics, is there still politics around food? There's always politics about food. There's more politics today than there ever was. And I tend to, uh, you know, there is the politics of that bur really burns in your, you know, in your stomach, you know, the, the homeless debates, you know, that, <laughs> where people get really kind of wound up and, and can really kind of go into a mini war over it. And can I've you got, explain what that debate well, is? Well, <laughs> there is all sorts of examples. I mean, I don't know how homeless has really become a kind of focal point. I think because it's become so popular in the West, it's like the ultimate, it's, you know, it's replaced the Coleslaw as the t ultimate, you know, supermarket tub. And, um, but actually, in, in, uh, in the Middle East, it's a meal, you know, as you serve it at room temperature, it comes with all sorts of wonderful toppings, you know, warm chickpeas or lamb, and it's, it's a, it's, it functions, it has a very different function. But um, I, I feel very strongly about it because I, I love my hummus, and I think, um, Sammy and I make a great hummus, and I get really upset when people add things that aren't, shouldn't really be there. <laughs> and um, and um, I even got myself into trouble recently with a British um, famous chef, whom name I'm not going to mention. Um, 
And, and I said that her hummus is not quite right because she takes tin chickpeas, puts them in the food processor with yogurt and olive oil and calls it a hummus. And I thought, like, that is impossible. <laughs> um, so the next day there is, a, <laughs> there is a headline in the Daily Mail saying, Yotamo Tolengi attacks <laughs> XYZ over hummus. <laughs> so uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit more uh, diplomatic about it now, and I'm not mentioning the name. But uh, I, you can all Google it. But, uh, <laughs> I think we can almost guess, too, if it's quick and easy. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in any case, so we, we, um, I got myself into trouble over hummus, and um, I wrote a little, um, a little uh, manifesto on my website uh, explaining my point of view to anyone who's interested in, in reading. But uh, beyond all that, uh, in the Middle East, the debate about hummus is a very serious debate, and it's a debate about identity and ownership, uh, which is much less funny than the one um, that I've, I've had. Uh, and that's because uh, people feel very strong, because when the reality is very difficult, and people hang on to their traditions as a way of establishing their identity. So when I, when I told you, let's talk about food and politics, it was interesting for me, in a sense, to try to understand how what we cook, what we put on the table, is a, is a way for us to define ourselves. And um, so that's in Jerusalem. And then I've, because I've been traveling over the last few years for my, for my TV programs, I've come across an infinite number of examples how food is a, is a, a wonderful tool in uh, unraveling identity. And um, I, if any of you has, uh, have watched my program, I try to get into people's uh, worlds through their pots and pans. So I, I go into someone's kitchen, I lift the lid, and I go like, what's in here? And I think it's, it's a wonderful thing to see that uh, uh, everybody wants to share food. It's the most immediate thing. And uh, even people who are quite cagey and maybe shy, and they wouldn't start talking about their life circumstances, completely melt as soon as you're going to ask them for a recipe and taste <laughs> it and, and, uh, and acknowledge uh, that it's good that you're en enjoying it. And uh, what I find the most exciting thing about traveling apart from discovering new ingredients, is actually being able to reach to people's, out to people's world and get a, get a really good understanding of what they're about through food. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's really the, the, my mission when I go out to, uh, to do a TV show. It's actually to kind of, first of all, share food, but then to kind of peel off layers and see what's, what else is, is hi hiding underneath. And have you had some revelations through that? I mean, obviously you have with, with the show, but... Um, <clears throat> learned things that you might have known or got to hear stories that you might not have heard otherwise? Oh, constantly and all the time. Like, um, I don't know if any of you have watched my, my, um, my, the one episode where I go to Morocco. And I was uh, cooking with a bunch of uh, Berber women in their house in the, in, the, in the mountains. And all of a sudden, she just starts laughing. I mean, we've been there for two hours, and it dawned on her that she's never seen a man roll couscous. And, uh, and I thought that was a, an amazing moment. I mean, she, her and her friends started laughing, almost hysterically, I mean, for that thing. And in our world, that, I mean, of course, there is, we, not, not all men cook as, as much as they should, but, uh, <laughs> but the idea that she's never actually seen a man touching couscous, and that made her laugh, was, it's a very revealing moment. So these, these things are so uh, poignant in the way they kind of 
unravel cultures and show us how, how different we all are from each other and how much there is going on. And the food is the way to, to kind of underst to understand that. And, and of course, because somebody shares their food with you, if, if you accept it, you're, you're accepting who they are. Yeah, and you are immediately accepted into their world. And people are very, you know, people love feeding. I don't know if you, 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 you notice, but people just love feeding other people. I so say you, you, you either love to be fed or you like to feed. And so <laughs> the, the world is divided to, to, to two camps. And, uh, and whenever you go, you do see the two sides, the feeders and the fed. And, uh, and it's, it's just wonderful. I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. So everybody, anyone can identify with the other side of the equation. I think you're a bit of both, though, aren't you? Um, yes, I am, actually. That's true. <laughs> now, many chefs and food personalities are also activists these days. They have causes. And I think you've kind of resisted being the poster boy for a lot of causes, from Judaism through to vegetarianism. <laughs> um, do you have any causes? Um, I don't have causes as such. I, I try to focus on, um, on my main task, which is producing wonderful food. And if something comes to mind that, and it works for me, then I, I uh, join the cause. Um, there is, uh, for instance, something that I feel, I feel very strongly about at the moment is there is uh, this campaign going on in Britain about feeding pigs waste of restaurants. Uh, because for many years, due to uh, the mad cow disease, they stopped feeding kids, uh, pigs, uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, we'll have to discuss that in private later. Um, um, they call it swill, right? Uh, what the, the leftovers of restaurants, and that really bugs me because there's so much waste. And restaurants, if anyone has ever worked in a restaurant kitchen and seen the amount of stuff that goes into the bin at the end of service, it's shocking. So, um, so feeding all that to pigs would be would make comp complete sense, but it's illegal in, in Britain at the moment. So that's something I feel very strongly about. I feel very strongly about my vegetables, <laughs> and uh, I uh, I try to uh, to convince uh, anyone I know, and uh, anyone who's in this audience or who is, uh, I, come, I come across in this book tour to try to engage more with vegetables and enjoy them more and try different ways with them. Uh, but the first, my first and, and only um, mission is really just to make them taste good. It's not about convincing anyone that it's good for them or that it's healthy. That doesn't, that's not my business. Uh, that's their business. But I really want to share the, the idea of how veg delicious vegetables are. And, and that's, that's, that's my, my one and only aim, really. And people also now are very conscious where their food comes from. And I guess that would apply also to your vegetables, Yotam. Do you care where your vegetables come from? Very much so. <laughs> uh, I'm a bit unfortunate because I live on a small rainy island and we don't have, uh, we don't have uh, uh, the, uh, the abundance that you have here in your uh, big sunny island. But, uh, but uh, so, uh, you know, we need to uh, get our vegetables sometimes from a f further distance, like uh, Italy or France or Spain. And uh, that's okay. But I, I feel strongly about seasonality because I think vegetables taste good at, in the right season. I think it's good to wait for the vegetable to come when it's ready to come to you and not getting 
get it over from Peru. And, um, and I just think it's, a gener it's a generally a good thing to be attuned to, to what you eat. But I, I'm not on, a, on, on, on any sides of the extremes of this debate, because I think it's also, you know, ingredients have been traded for thousands and thousands of years across the world. And I, we've all benefited from this trade. And uh, nowadays, you can grow things that, that grow in one part and another part. I've, I've seen a, a farm in Devon now that grows shiso leaves, which are like a Japanese staple. And, you know, so we get our own fresh British shiso leaves. I mean, <laughs> what's the world coming to? <laughs> so it's, it's fantastic. So I, I don't, I'm not a firm, firm believer of, of, um, of uh, um, farm-to-table um, policy, but I do think it's good to keep this in mind and try as much as possible to, to stay attuned to what's going on in, uh, in the outside world. So you talk about living on a small rainy island and you talk about England as we. Um, and I read recently <laughs> that you, <laughs> you describe yourself as a London boy at heart. Um, so what does being a London boy mean to someone from Jerusalem? Nice you can be a boy at the age of 45. <laughs> That's, uh, and, you wrote it. Uh, yeah, I no, it. I wrote it. And now I, uh, I think it's... No, but um, in a, in a sense... Um, what I, what I talk about, I've got a kind of split personality because I guess I'm, I'll always be Israeli, but I won't, will never be English. But London is a good place to start because I think it's one of those uh, places that really kind of is void of, an, of a national identity in, in the best sense of, this, of the term. It's, a, it's a, multi, a melting pot is a cliche, but it really is a kind of a mixture, impossible mixture of people that constantly get, you know, interact with each other. Lots of Aussies, by the way. Um, and uh, we love them. And many of them work for me and with <laughs> me and uh, affect the way I cook. But I think the, the, the main thing is that uh, London does have that ability to suck people in and get the most out of them. And because it's such a busy place and everybody works so hard, there's also kind of this hyper creativity going on. So it's nice to be part of that kind of uh, factory of creativity that I think London really breeds. So I'm very proud of London because I think it's, it's very cosmopolitan, but I think it's also a very tolerant place. Um, you know, more than any other European city that I can think of. It's, uh, it's kind of a good, it's kind of in a good place in between the new world and the old world uh, in terms of values and, and, and the, way, the way it works. So I'm very proud to be uh, kind of part of the London fabric. And of course we have to ask if you have a favorite British dish Oh, well, um, <laughs> now I, that you're a London boy, <laughs> I do make a good Yorkshire pudding. Um, I've worked in a, in a traditional restaurant, English restaurant, once in my life, and, um, and I made a lot of those every Sunday morning for the roast. So, yeah, I, c I can make a good Yorkie. <laughs> and what about Jewish dishes? Um, you know, obviously we're talking about growing up in Jerusalem, that very Israeli um, tradition of food that's much more um, Middle East and Mediterranean. But there are all those classic Eastern Central European <laughs> Jewish dishes. Do you engage with any of those? I will have to uh, use a joke told by another chef in another, in another event, um, not myself, but I thought it was very funny. And he said that in Israel... The, uh, you only eat gefilte fish if your grandmother is still alive. <laughs> <laughs> 
which I thought it was quite a, that's quite a, a good point. So it's kind of the evil necessity. Uh, that, that's what uh, that's what uh, the point he was trying to make. So you know, it's it's I I, it, I, I can eat, actually eat anything, including the filter fish, if it's covered in in horseradish, and um, and you can't taste anything but it. Then it's one of the most delicious things in, in the world. But Eastern European food, Jewish Eastern European food, has very good examples. In, in, in Jerusalem, we have our babkar, traditional kind of Eastern European cake, that is a yeasted cake, a bit like the challah, and it's stuffed with either nuts or chocolate or both, and it's absolutely fantastic. We have a very good chopped liver. Sami makes a great chopped liver. He's a good Jewish boy. And, um, <laughs> And, uh, and there is a good uh, matzo balls. So I'm not, I'm not knocking Eastern European food. It's not my first port of call. I, I'm more in the Sephardi tradition or the Palestinian tradition. But I think um, what I like about Israeli food is that kind of it brings the best out of all cultures, kind of picks the best things. And as a result, I think what's going on in Israel now is really exciting because the new chefs, the new generation of cooks actually try to m imagine managed to marry together the cuisines of their ancestors, mostly Sephardi Jews from North Africa or from Syria or from Iraq, with uh, some of the local foods that's been cooked for generations in Israel, in Palestine. And uh, the result is actually really exciting. You get like a proper food that is good for the place, so less Italian restaurants and more or French and more proper food that is from the region. And I, I think that's, that's a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. So have you, in your travels, also discovered, you know, you're, you've introduced everybody to new ingredients. Um, do you keep discovering new ingredients? And are there, are there some we should know about <laughs> that we have to well, be looking for? I, some of the ingredients that I discovered and bring over to the UK are from Australia. Well, seriously? Seriously, like? yes. Like, for instance, we sell verjuice. Ah. And, uh, the, of course, it wasn't invented by Maggie Beers, but, uh, <laughs> but she's done a lot to popularize it. And uh, to, re to have it, I mean, the French have been cooking with it for years. And before the French, everywhere in the old world, that people have been using uh, the juice of unripe grapes instead of vinegar. And it's a wonderful thing. But uh, as someone who's really brought it into vogue, she gets a lot of credit. And so that's a bit of... Uh, uh, an Australian uh, mm. in the ingredient, and it appears in plenty more, by the way. Um, and uh, but more, you know, there's there's tons of things. I, I um, in my travels recently, I've come across in Jerusalem kashk or kishk, which is fermented yogurt that's been allowed to dry completely in the sun, and uh, develop a very intense flavor. It's really hard to get, but once you get it, you it's it's absolutely delicious. Um, it's, it's sold normally in a rehydrated form, so in a jar. But when you go in the old city of Jerusalem, you see these red, these little white rocks, which I always thought was soap, but actually it's dried yogurt. And, um, and it's absolutely delicious. It's kind of a, 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 a if you t imagine mixing together um, feta, parmesan, and, and blue cheese. It's that kind of, uh, it's those kind of flavors. And it's great for soups and sauces. You can cook your kebabs in it or your stuffed vegetables in it. It doesn't split as much as yogurt does. And it's really, really special. So that's some things that, that, that I've recently discovered. But the book is full of those, 
of those discoveries because I can never sit still. I always need a new, <laughs> a new ingredient to uh, annoy you with. <laughs> a new challenge for everybody when they get the book is going out and finding. You can get kishki in um, Middle Eastern grocery stores, so that's, that's reassuring. Um, so um, what about food trends? Again, you're... you're you're a townie, you're an urbanite, <laughs> and we're all subjected to the um, highs and lows of trends in food. Uh, one minute it's, you know, this year it's Korean, last year it was Mexican. Um, Superfoods, uh, all sorts of things that come and go, crazy diets, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> do you do you follow trends a little bit, or do you ignore them completely uh, and set your own? I pick and choose mm. my trends. I. Uh, <laughs> The trends that I don't follow are the health trends because I don't believe in health trends. I believe everybody should eat a little bit of everything, which is a very commonsensical thing to do. I'm sure all your mothers told you when you were growing up, but we've been almost indoctrinized to kind of purify our diets of certain things. And, uh, and I think that's the wrong approach. If you take something, you put something in that you shouldn't. And, and I think... Um, in my opinion, um, and that's what I, I do in all my books, you should really be trying to, to engage in, in everything, whether it's vegetable, whether it's a little bit of meat, whether it's fat, whether it's uh, gluten. You know, I'm not talking about allergies. I'm talking about the whole idea that, you know, that we eat everything. And I, I've, never, I've never had a feeling, no doctor and no research has ever convinced me to stop eating something uh, that comes from nature, unless it's got lots of E numbers around it. But <laughs> something that is really kind of, that has stood the, the test of time, I don't think there could be anything wrong with it. And that includes butter and sugar and lots of other things. Um, other trends I think are actually, I, I have more time for them. Uh, when it comes to, uh, to I think, I think there's, it's really nice that now in the days where everything is so accessible and available and visual, we can get to see what people cook in uh, New York or in South America or in uh, Japan. And I get very excited when I, I, I've come across um, things like, you know, southern cooking from southern USA, which has a lot of, which I would never have known about. So it's, it's okay. It's kind of annoying to see that all the restaurants serve burger sliders for about three years and then move on to the next thing. But, but it's also a great way for us to learn about food and get engaged in new, in cuisine, in new cuisines. And somehow they always leave something behind that uh, we keep on doing. So I, I, I don't think that these trends are, are uh, without merit. But I, I do have very little time for all these uh, health scares and health uh, crazies. That's reassuring, isn't it? I think we all <laughs> we all like to hear that. Um, Nopi, <laughs> some clapping coming. Nopi, your restaurant um, in London, which Nopi stands for north of Piccadilly, which is where it is, um, has some Otterlingi-style dishes, but also has some Asian influence dishes, I guess. Uh, that's partly due to your chef there? Yeah. Um, and the, sh the chef who runs Nopi and creates the dishes there is called Ramal Scully. He's Australian. And he's a Sydney boy. He's not a London boy. <laughs> well, maybe he is now. Yeah. And, uh, and he's, uh, he's a super talented guy that I've been working with for the last 10 years. And um, he's brought his own cuisine. He, Scully is originally of, from Malaysia, so uh, quite a bit of, of his background uh, in food comes into the, to the equation. And it works really well, well because it's, uh, it's, first of all, it's food that I like, but it works very well in London because it's got all this kind of sunny flavors. 
And, um, and uh, Scully and I are actually working on the Nopi cookbook now at the moment, uh, I'm going to co-write co it, and it's, uh, it's going to appear on your bookshelves or on your, in your bookstores, hopefully also on the shelves, in, uh, in, uh, in about a year's time. And right, that means uh, you can come back again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's a very exciting project. So Asian style dishes, so that's great, Middle East and Asian. Is there, is there a line between fusion and, and confusion? Is there a point where you actually stop, you know, melding flavours from, from your travels from different parts of the world? Uh, I try to, uh, to tell myself that there is a little bit of logic behind my madness. <laughs> and um, and um, in my mind, there is a... I, I try to see to look at it in, in geographical terms, and I see I, I kind of do take incremental steps. So I started off in Jerusalem, as as we've established, and then I've moved a bit north, a bit east, and a bit west. So North African, recently to uh, to uh, the area east of, of of Israel, which is you know around the per Persia, Iraq, and I've discovered in Iranian food some of the most exciting ingredients that I've been cooking with over the last few years. Kashk is one of them, but barberries and limes and all sorts of dried limes and all sorts of wonderful things. So every step I make has makes sense to me. You know, I said, okay, so if, I, if I'm using walnuts and pomegranates, I can add saffron and I can add lime. And it kind of rhymes. It has a certain logic. And that's the, that's the explanation that I, I, uh, I give to it. And then I can move on to India and add the dals and the lentils, which are also very much part of uh, the core Middle Eastern diet. So I don't do things willy-nilly. And I don't jump on the plane to Finland and bring mousse and add it to my uh, <laughs> to my my, uh, to my to my to my to uh, my repertoire, but I do uh, I do have that kind of idea of what would work and what doesn't work. But I do it carefully, and I'm a great believer in tradition. Despite even if it doesn't look through my book that I'm a great believer in tradition, I think certain recipes that have stood the test of time you do not play with, and uh, those are um, those are, I have great respect for. And when people get angry with me for playing with them, I don't blame them. Um, recently, I got into trouble over an Irish stew uh, with a lot of Irish and English people that thought it was just unheard of that I add orange zest to my Irish stew. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> but um, I've got an Irish uh, mother-in-law, and, and she forgave me, so that's okay. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, so, you know, that's, that's how it goes. You can, you're always going to get some people angry when it comes to food, talking about politics. But I, I, I have a clear conscience. <laughs> Except when someone messes with your hummus. Yeah, no, that is, that is, that is not, that you don't do. <laughs> um, so we should talk about plenty more, of course, because you are a crusader for vegetables, the downtrodden world of vegetables. And um, this book is full of vegetable recipes, and you've, just, and you've listed them by cooking method which is really interesting. Yeah. Is that to encourage us to go beyond boiling? Yeah, well, boiling is out. <laughs> and uh, overboiling is even more out. <laughs> I think anyone that has ever um, experienced, uh, had the Brussels sprout effect of childhood who knows what I t I'm talking about. And um, so it's all about new ways with old ingredients. I mean, there are all the new ingredients that we discussed, but in, in actual fact, what I get more excited about at the moment are cabbage and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and turnips and swedes and all those ingredients that have been with us forever. 
but we've neglected to see that there's a ton of ways to, to cook them. And um, so that's why I called my chapters according to the cooking technique. I, there's, um, like Joanna said, there's roasted and grilled and char grilled and, and baked and steamed. And it, it's all about taking the ingredients and working, uh, working with them in a creative and a different way and getting very different results. If you take the Brussels sprouts, for, for, for example, there's about five recipes here for Brussels sprouts that involve very different techniques. There's a slaw that just involves you know, slicing it very thinly and uh, mixing it with lots of acidity and lots of other wonderful vegetables. There's a Brussels sprout risotto that is finished with some deep fried Brussels sprouts on top, so you get two textures. There is gr uh, grilled Brussels sprouts that are mixed with pomelo and star anise and all sorts of wonderful things. So in a sense, taking something that is, in some people's minds, so horrible and, uh, and just injecting it with life, give, keeping the color there, keeping the flavor there, and making sure that it's, it's, it's done properly. And, and I think that's, that's the message that I'm trying to, to bring across with, with this book, that there is really no way to resort to your knee-jerk option, that there's so many other options with vegetables, and, it's, and each one opens a whole new world into, into a vegetable. How many Brussels sprouts haters in this audience? Very few. See? Oh, no, that's yeah. quite a few. Yeah, and try, try the, uh, the, the haters. <laughs> Let's meet in three years' time when I come to promote <laughs> the next book and see what uh, these recipes did for you. Because, you know, putting Brussels sprout in a very hot oven with a bit of olive oil and some aromatics, where they slightly char on the outside and say super soft in the middle, um, avoids any sort of bitterness. It kind of keeps all the wonderful flavors in and makes it really kind of a new thing. So I really hope that ones who raise their hands will not raise them next time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I could see some nods in the front row from the Brussels sprouts converts and the skeptics. <laughs> the Brussels sprouts skeptics are going to be talking to you about this. I think they'll be emailing you about your recipes shortly. Um, I can't wait to get the emails. <laughs> So we want to leave a little bit of time for questions. Before we get there, I, I think it is a bit of a classic question, but we've heard from you that you are going to do open a new restaurant, which is exciting. We're also incredibly excited that you're going to write an Opie cookbook with Scully because that means that you'll have to come on another book tour <laughs> and we'll be here. Um, what, what, what's the dream? What else would you really, really love to do? Um, I live the dream because I do you things that I love dream. doing. I am very fortunate to be writing recipes, and uh, writing recipes is a wonderful creative activity that actually every, as I said, every chef and every cook would love to do. So I, I really enjoy what I'm doing. And um, I've already got the next book in mind, which is probably going to be a, a baking and sweet book uh, to all the people that have been waiting for it. <laughs> uh, that's a, a big serious book that's in the making. It's also going to be co-authored. And, um, and that's it. I, I, I don't have a big five-year plan, but I know that uh, there's, I, I'm never, I'm going, I never stay in one place. I'm going to do other things, but uh, remains to be seen. Remains to be seen. <laughs> well, you keep us posted, please. I will. Um, Yotam, thank you so much. I'd love to see if anyone would like to ask a couple of questions because this is your chance. There's a microphone um, just here. It's suddenly, oh, I love the Opera House, the way that just came to life. It's got a big one on it. And there's another one up there that's got a big two on it. So if you would like to ask a question, please stand in front of microphone number one or number two. And there's a gentleman, is that gentleman right behind microphone number one ready to go? Great. 
<laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Firstly, welcome to Sydney. Thank you. And uh, it's nice to have you here. Uh, we know that the Lebanese make the best hummus in the world. <laughs> I would never argue with that. <laughs> Definitely you, not the Greeks. Definitely not. Could you tell me, for your, when you do your hummus, do you use the tent or do you boil the chickpeas from the beginning? Um, absolutely no tins. No. <laughs> absolutely no tins. I use tin chickpeas for many things, and uh, they're absolutely fine for stews and when you add them to soups, etc. Uh, when they are kind of, uh, when they're in the context of other flavors, but hummus is all about the chickpeas. So I, you really need to work from fresh chickpeas and not a tin doesn't work for me, not at all. Magic, can you tell your mother? Who's <laughs> 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 going to break it to her? <laughs> Otolengi <laughs> said. Hi. Hi. Um, I actually have all of your cookbooks, um, but the way I find myself cooking your recipes most of the time is to actually look at what I've got in the cupboard um, and Google those ingredients with the word Otolengi uh, <laughs> next to it, uh, which makes me wonder. I always come up with something, which makes me wonder, how many recipes do you think you've actually written over the years? Well, I'm very pedantic, as you can probably imagine, and I keep track of things. And all my garden columns are, are numbered. So I've published about 420 um, columns, which is, I think, about probably, plus the books, it's more than a 1,000 re recipes, yeah, over the years. Wow. <laughs> Great question. I wondered if you expected an accurate answer. Yeah, I don't know why I know this. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be admitting to this, but uh, it is probably the case. Uh, it's, There's someone we, standing We want there. everyone to hear, so yeah. do you mind? Uh, yeah. uh, welcome to Sydney. I've watched a lot of your programs and you've been in a lot of kitchens. Have you been in any kitchens where you felt unwelcomed? Um, it's a wonderful question. I have to say, uh, the answer is no. Um, normally when you come with a TV crew into a kitchen, that kind of element of surprise has been eliminated <laughs> by researchers. <laughs> so uh, um, th th it's hard to come to, come to surprise people in, in their kitchens in, in that respect so that they're unhappy. There have been some situations where it's been a bit overwhelming for the host, the amount of hassle that it is to entertain a TV crew. I don't know if in your days it happened, but when we arrived in Morocco the first night and we were still not doing what knew what we were doing, we arrived into this kitchen in, uh, in uh, Riyadh and it was really a complete nightmare. We, would, we wanted to um, cook in this, in this poor Moroccan woman's kitchen and she didn't know what was coming, you know, the lights and they've rearranged the set and it was a nightmare and I've, I, we've, I've actually decided, we've decided after that not to do anything like that anymore but it was an awkward situation. But more, I want to give actually the example of the opposite because when I did Jerusalem on a plate I had a really wonderful experience where um, I was going to, I met by chance a Palestinian family and that was not planned or orchestrated in any way in one of uh, the places I went to eat in and they invited me 
to their house on the hoof. And then a few days later, we arrived to, to their house. And uh, it was the most remarkable experience. I've never been to a Palestinian kitchen as such. I've been to, to but into in Israel, but not in the West Bank, which is kind of um, kind of enemy territory in, in, in quotation marks. And uh, and uh, it was pretty amazing. The whole experience was so loving. And you know, the cousin came especially from Jordan with her dishes, and the brother came from the other part of town, and they welcomed me so much because. As I said, I mean, it's it's all about feeding. It's all about uh, there is that intense uh, desire to get people to like your food or to like you through the food, and it was a marvelous moment. It was completely awkward for me to arrive with a film crew, a Jewish Israeli guy, into this Palestinian home in the other part of town, and it would it was made completely natural just by the fact that you know she was ready with her friends with the food and. The food just broke down all the barriers in seconds. It was one of the most memorable meals I've, I've ever had. Why food does that? Why does it break barriers? Um, I think food breaks break barriers because it's just the experience. It's the one experience that we all share. And, we, and, uh, and when you approach someone, and, and it's got to do with the fact, that we, the fact that we love to feed. I think as soon as you allow someone to take care of you and to share something with you, then it's already half, you're already halfway you know, to their heart. I, I don't think it takes much more than uh, acknowledging someone's food to, to, to kind of be, be their friend. And it's a very intimate thing to eat so, something that someone has just cooked for you. So I, so I think by feeding me, she, it was actually a kind of a declaration of, of a sort of an intimacy. I agree, and what I find is because I'm a feeder, and <laughs> um, that straight away there's an emotional connection with the people that you're with. Yeah. And there's very few other mediums that does that so quickly. Absolutely, absolutely, because everybody eats. Yeah. So everybody knows what it means to to eat. You know, that's how basic it is. Well, I thank you because all your recipes are delicious. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. Hi. I don't know how long you've been in Sydney for, but I wanted to know what are your highlights about eating in Sydney and any restaurants you've enjoyed? So I, I have to uh, disappoint you. I have had a meal, a couple of meals yesterday at Nomad, uh, which is uh, a great restaurant. Uh, run by a very talented uh, chef called Nathan Sissi. Sassy. Sassy. Yeah. And, um, and it's a great place, but I've mo mainly, I'm afraid to say, eaten my food since I arrived here, <laughs> which is what happens when you go on a book tour because all the events are showcasing you and your food. So I've been to North America now for two weeks and then I arrived here in Sydney. And all I've been eating is the cauliflower cake from, uh, <laughs> from Plenty More. So I don't think I'm going to have much of that when I come back home. The buttermilk um, okra batter, uh, okra, that it was, a, it was a collaborative dinner at Nomad, so we had five chefs, um, yeah. which was extraordinary, and there was a really beautiful collaboration, and the way all the flavours melded in from Nathan Sassi of Nomad, and Soma, who was Turkish, and Michael, who's Israeli, and Simon, who is Lebanese, it was lovely, um, but your buttermilk okra. Yeah. It's, in it's, here. In it's in here, isn't it? Yeah, it was, that was extraordinary. I would never get tired of eating that if that was my food. <laughs> Hi. 
Um, you mentioned earlier that you think it's good for people to try a bit of everything in their diet. Um, do you have a particular guilty pleasure? <laughs> <laughs> I, tried to, I tried not to engage it with guilt. So, um, you know, I, I eat uh, uh, sweets and things that I shouldn't be eating and chocolate bars of maybe not the best quality. I know a good one when I come across it, but I never stop myself from eating something that I see and love. Um, not really. I mean, I, I have, like m many cooks and chefs, I have my instant ramen noodles waiting for me for a moment uh, of, uh, of need, of need <laughs> with a bit of MSG uh, added to the equation. And I, and I don't uh, torment myself about it. I, I, like I said, I really do feel that um, we need to start feeling a little bit less pressurized to eat in a certain way and not to eat in other ways. It's, it's very liberating to stop thinking what you have to eat <laughs> and not eat. And I, believe me, I really do that. I, I, I have my coffee or my caffeine, I eat my bread and I eat this. But it's, once you've actually started afresh without the guilt, you realize that you actually do tend to eat quite balanced because that's, that's kind of it's more instinctive, I think. Well, I recommend trying a Tim Tam if you haven't had one yet. I have. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I have tried Tim Tam. There is a shop in Notting Hill that sells Tim Tam. The grocer on Elgin sells Tim Tam. Uh, it caters for Kiwis and Australians, and uh, you can go there and buy it. This comes in a couple of packagings. I, I've tried one of them at least. Yeah, the original is the best one. The I original, think, yeah. okay. <laughs> Um, Last like, chance for a question before we wrap up. Yes. Oh, this lady's sliding all her way out. Now, very shortly, this might actually, I think, oh, is that a person making? Yeah, okay, no, two questions, and then we'll wrap up because okay. we want to give you some time also to meet Yotam outside and get your book signed. Thank you. Yotam, <laughs> it's uh, great to see you live. I've been to your cafe in uh, Islington in London, loved every second. Um, my question is, what ingredient could you not live without? <laughs> this is the, the wrong person, the wrong, you're asking the wrong person, the question uh, to the wrong person because, uh, well, <laughs> whichever way. Uh, I, I, could, I could not live with so many ingredients. So if you ask me for one, I'll, I'll start probably a list. Uh, I you guess maybe le lemon would probably be the one. And actually, it's um, it's very interesting. It's a good it's a good question because now because uh, it makes me think that this book. I was talking about versatility with vegetables, but um, this book takes lemon to the extreme because you've all you all know my love affair with lemons. It's almost comical how I, I squirt lemon juice into almost everything, especially on the TV. And uh, and but this here, there's a lot of lemon chopping, flesh lemon fr lemon flesh going into salads. There's a lot of roasting of lemon slices also in going into salads. There's the Iranian lemons that are dried hard. So I've kind of, I've, I've, I'm showcasing lemon here in quite a few new, uh, new guises and I, I think that would be probably the one that I choose to, uh, to answer this time. But ask me tomorrow, there'll be another one. <laughs> Thank you. And our final question right upstairs. Something just a, a little bit different. Thanks very much. I, I really enjoyed that. And I just had a question you mentioned before about using geography and the travel and um, you know, sort of doing it all through flavour through travel. And I was wondering, did you, when you studied philosophy, mainly study Western or Middle Eastern philosophy? And I was just <laughs> wondering how that's influenced your perspective on life and, and what you do now. Um, 
It's a good question. I, I, I studied only Western philosophy. Um, that's what, what I was taught. But um, I uh, focused on, uh, in a, uh, my, my, my um, dissertation was in aesthetics, art philosophy, and uh, I feel quite passionately about um, the arts. I mean, it's quite general. But uh, I, I, aesthetics is, is important to me, and I think I did learn to appreciate it through theory and then through practice, through what I do. So I think that's a kind of a thread that connects the two experiences together. I think I chose art philosophy because I had a, a kind of inclination that, that this is something that I feel strongly about and it kind of triggers me. And I take a lot of uh, pride in how I make things, in the way things look in the books, in the way the food appears. I think it's very important to have a, an aesthetic experience. Wonderful. Th thanks very much. Thank really interesting. <laughs> <And> <laughs> And aren't we lucky that um, Jotam gave up a career in philosophy and took up a career in cooking instead? Jotam Ottolenghi, it's been wonderful having thank you, you here. Thank you to everybody who thank came. You. And thank you to Sydney Opera House. And enjoy the rest of your evening. <laughs>